Welcome to the Thriving New Teachers Podcast. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Thriving New Teachers podcast. My name is Justin Griggs and I'm really pleased to share with you all um, an interview that I did with Phil Kamei, who is a house leader at our school and a very, very highly regarded teacher, specifically with regards to his skills in uh, classroom management and uh, building really positive relationships with students and parents as well. So uh, amongst other things, he's a very, very uh, highly regarded teacher. So um, I do apologise that there is a slight glitch in the audio at about the three-minute mark, um, but shouldn't cause too many problems in terms of understanding our conversation. Um, so without further ado, I uh, hope you enjoy listening to the interview as much as I did uh, speaking with Phil. Okay, welcome everyone to the third episode of Thriving New Teachers podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with Phil and Phil is an experienced teacher who um, this year has taken on a very interesting role uh, off his own back and that is uh, basically a mentoring program for graduate teachers. Um, so Phil, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, great to have you, mate. And I'm um, interested to know first off why you chose uh, graduate teachers specifically. I think the catalyst for what I was trying to do this year was actually born a couple of years ago when another colleague and myself tried to get a proposal together here at, at Marsland College um, to organise a kind of peer support program with a focus on graduate teachers. What came out of that was um, the program grew and the college leadership saw some real validity in it and wanted to actually extend that to all staff, um, knowing that coaching and mentoring is, is obviously really appropriate for them. Um, so last year we rolled out a coaching program for all staff um, and this year I wanted to go back and focus on what my initial um, and my initial hopes for the program were uh, and work with graduate and beginning teachers. Um, so this year I've taken a, a few graduate and beginning teachers um, into my support and tried to facilitate any assistance I could throughout the year. Awesome. And um, I know that you've made a great impact in that area. Was there anything... I guess in your own experience that um, that made an impact impact or led you to um, I guess feel like you could really make an impact with those graduate teachers. Yeah, so I've always been pretty conscious of some of the shortcomings that graduates have or anybody has at the beginning of their career and some of the issues associated with that. Um, whether you look at some of the pseudoscience related to when people start to feel comfortable in their career and you know the challenges that you have to go through those early stages. Um, I've always been really aware of that. I've also had some really great support during that time. Um, and I, in my own experience as a, as, a, as a graduate, I was really well supported by my own mentors and leading teachers around me. So using that experience that I actually had as a, as a, as a graduate, I wanted to facilitate the growth and, and support other um, beginning teachers upon their journey as well. The growth. Um, and then support me with that because you know what I, I lacked some some areas within my my toolkit of skills and and um, 
classroom strategies. So he was able to give me um, lots of great pointers along the way. As any graduate teacher, you make you make errors, and and um, and the, I think the the flourishing of someone's career is only through the support of an expert other. Um, I think probably the reason, another reason for my interest in working with graduates is around, um, I think that the only way to improve or circumvent some of those issues we have around retention of graduates and, and, and early career, early stage teachers is around, you know, hopefully navigating some of the pitfalls that a lot of people suffer early on, whether it be difficult conversations or managing unruly behaviour um, or just around organisation and the planning and, and some of the stresses associated with that. If you're able to give tips, strategies, learnings that you've had, um, you don't learn through that kind of failure, re, you know, retry, repeat, mm -hmm. um, you know, that I think is afforded to some graduate teachers. I think most, most workplaces are aware that, Graduates and, and beginning teachers are going to make errors and, and have challenges and, and growth edges, um, but they don't really put any strategies in place to really focus on developing, you know, tacit skills. Um, and that's something that I've been really, really aware of. So in terms of, of what you actually put into place with graduate teachers this year, um, I'm interested to, to know sort of what, what, you, what you did and, and, and what worked, what didn't. Um, to, to be totally honest, there's probably more things that didn't work than actually were real successes. Um, if I talk about the successes for me, um, and they're, they're a little bit intangible to be totally honest, but I think some of the successes were um, being a avenue of support for different graduate teachers in addition to whatever support networks they had, um, whether that be you know their VIT mentor or their learning leader who's their kind of direct report or their, their school assigned buddy. I was lucky to work with a number of people who actually fell outside my uh, learning domain. Um, so there's that extra voice. And I think I bring certain perspectives as well. Um, when I look at kind of the map of that gradu the graduate teachers I worked with, when I look at the profile of the people they worked with, I thought I brought something unique, uh, a unique perspective. So I think that was a real success. Um, you know, some of the challenges and, and failures, I suppose, when you really boil down is around, you know, finding time in their day, in my day, to really focus on some of those tacit skills I was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I tried to keep the conversations, my coaching conversations with the grads, um, really focused around their goals, their needs, things that were concerning them at the time, and it may have been their VIT or whatever it was. Um, but I also want them to think big picture, and I think I have been a very aspirational teacher my whole career, I think. And I, I think I brought a bit of that lens to the people I worked with and I thought that was a bit of a challenge um, when you're kind of working with, and this is probably a growth edge for myself as a coach, when you're working with people who possibly aren't as aspirational, they only know what they know, um, you know, opening their eyes to the possibility um, of me and their potential um, was, was probably something that I'd like to refine over time. Um, I didn't do anything officially. Um, the school didn't recognise my work with the graduate and in, you know, beginning teachers as a separate arm of our coaching program that we've currently got. They viewed it just as an as a as an additional extra. So I um, I kind of supported people from the perspective as 
just an area of interest um, rather than the school. I think one of the areas to actually improve and some of my recommendations would be to really acknowledge, I suppose with your work as well, acknowledge that graduate teachers and, in, and, and beginning career teachers need a lot of support. And one of the support structures is a specific coach, not focused necessarily on the VIT, not necessarily focused on kind of the nuts and bolts of how a school operates and the policies, um, but somebody who can, you know, troubleshoot, um, you know, whether it be student management issues or classroom practice, um, you know, troubleshoot those things with them, offer, offer moments of advice, but again, keep it really focused on whatever the goals yeah, I, a couple of things that I picked up um, early on. You mentioned um, the that you weren't necessarily in the teaching area that the particular Graduate, people you yeah. Yeah, the, the teachers that you were working with were, were actually teaching in. So what you're, I guess, what, what I'm hearing is that sometimes that can be actually beneficial rather than actually than always having somebody from your department yeah. and having that that context specific lens giving giving some feedback that's not actually. Um, specific to to that um, that subject area and being more of a broad or even just bringing in things a different perspective that you have as a music and um, what's your other method maths, sorry yeah hey, maths. music maths yeah which yeah it's a, it's a double edged sword to be totally honest yeah um, because you've got to establish rapport and empathy really quickly with them yeah. so that you know I think when you work in the same domain you share so many. Uh, things in, in common that rapport is kind of established quite naturally mm -hmm. um, as opposed to well you know do, do you really understand me I think one of the benefits I have as a as a coach for these for these particular people is I work in an area which is highly practical uh, being music and I also work in a very traditional classroom setting like a like a maths classroom as well so you know you can work across the you know the vast you know, um, vast curriculum areas. You reach across a number of curriculum areas um, through those two similar experiences. So that was really good, but I also felt that it gave, um, it didn't have some of the formalities associated with it, like meeting with your learning leader can nat naturally have. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it opened up, or it has the potential certainly um, down the track to open up conversations with a graduate around maybe some of the areas for growth without the concerns of the judgment of a learning leader or the learning leader naturally bestowing his or her recommendations or or um or, or ways of doing things upon the upon the graduate so mm, judgment's a big one and yeah. that's that's something that I'm interested to talk a little for you to talk a little more about um, so on that note, did you ever, um, were you ever invited in or did you ever go in and observe any of these teachers while they were actually teaching a class? No, we did. I, I didn't have an opportunity to get there. And again, like I said, there's probably more challenges I've had with my work. Um, you know, one of the challenges was I, I did try and get to a lot of teachers mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's just not, not feasible around my workload and, and my leadership. So... Um, you know, I probably bit off a bit more than I can chew at the start of the year, but that's that's still good good learning for me. Um, I would have liked to get to a look and learn situation where I'm kind of, you know, also letting them into my classroom as well. And there's that kind of two way reciprocal respect um, going on because I think that could have been really really powerful. 
Um, at the end of the day, lots of the work that I did was situated around their goals and, the, and some of them the areas of, of my personal strength, to be totally honest, around student management and, and troubleshooting difficult classroom situations weren't some of the goals of the, pe- the graduates I was working with. So they had goals of a more um, practical nature around, you know, completing a VIT or um, they're, you know, completing a, a CV for an up and coming job um, application or whatever it was. So areas where I could offer assistance, but it wasn't necessarily in the domain area of curriculum or classroom, yeah. um, which is unfortunate, but it, it, it served the purpose. Which is tough because, you know, um, everyone's obviously got their specific skill sets, even even the coaches. Yeah. So I guess then there's a battle of, of matching coaching skill sets with the goals or the, the needs of a particular um, graduate or, or early career teacher. Um, and you've, you've also mentioned there about, I guess, trying to get to too many people. Um, so what I'm hearing from that is like a bit of trying to find a balance between the breadth and the depth in terms mm. of supporting. So, you know, the more people you're obviously getting around to, the less time you can spend with each of them, yeah. particularly given that it was, you know, it's obviously a growing program, um, the one that you, you've been operating. So what sort of numbers would you suggest are manageable um, and in terms of time, if you had to estimate how much time does a person need per um, week, per fortnight, mm. um, if it's going to be a meaningful coaching um, scenario? Yeah, I, I don't know what the actual time allowance is. I don't know what the number is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the old adage is the more time you have, the more time you're going to need in the end. Um, I think, you know, using one of the recommendations we've had in our conversations around having a cohort, I think that's a really cost-effective and time-effective way of being able to get a group, a, a, you know, a PLC together, and getting a group of like-minded individuals to converse, troubleshoot together. It, it, um, it centralises conversation as opposed to, you know, individual conversations. And there's a time and place for both, don't get me wrong, but I'm just thinking about maximum effect with um, mi- as minimal effort as you possibly can have. Um, I think through a a community or a mm-hmm. cohort is probably the best way of doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, I think if you if I was able to meet, you know, I know a lot of coaches have been they've been recommended to meet at least four times a year, once a term. Um, I don't think that's sufficient for a graduate, to be totally honest. Um, I think if you're meeting with a formally, that is, if you're meeting with a graduate formally once every fortnight, I think that's a way to establish a really effective relationship and also prevent some of the bad habits or, or try and establish some really good habits um, with your graduate in the early part of their career. So I think, you know, once a fortnight formally um, or, you know, having that, that that group come together at least once a fortnight would yeah. be probably the best, my recommendation at this stage. Yeah, so you're touching on the idea of team versus individual coaching there. So, um, and, and I'm not meaning to, to have this as a, um, you know, why didn't you do this? Yeah. Or uh, because you've, a lot of this that you've, you've sort of created off your own back. So did you have any opportunities to get the team of, of, um, of people you were working with together? Yeah, I, no, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And I think the hardest thing is, you know, you, you really tread that fine line between the goodwill of individuals and people wanting to be a part of the program and then people being mandated to be a part of the program and people's willingness to engage in the program. Um, and I think one of the beautiful things about what we're doing at Marsland with our coaching program is it's coaches who want to be there and coaches who opt in to be there and they select their coach 
coach from a list through a biography process, obviously their knowledge of their own colleagues. Mm -hmm. So it's a really beautiful way of establishing relationship early, get, making sure the coachee buys into the program really early. Whereas what I did was I just kind of tapped graduates on the shoulder at the start of the year, said, this is my new role. I'd love to support you in whatever capacity. And I think as a senior leader, as well as a graduate coach, I think most people are just obliging I think on the back of whether it be my personality or position or whatever it may be, as opposed to understanding that it's a such a pivotal part of their growth and development, as well as a college um, sanctioned and approved um, professional development for their ongoing professional development. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the, you, you, you tre I was treading that fine line between um, enforcing a program on somebody and supporting their well-being and not overloading them. And as you know, graduates have so many um, requirements on them at the start of the year, at the start of um, their, their career that, you know, I was I felt I was always navigating that. And I thought it would be, you know, we, we do have designated PL time here. And I thought by getting the group of graduates to sit down together, that's just an added layer of, and perceived work for them, mm. to be totally honest, perceived work for them, which I didn't want. I wanted it to be a really user-friendly, orientated around their growth and support yeah. Um, and I just thought, just with the current climate and, and some of the things I see in my own personal interactions with people, I just thought that added layer um, wouldn't be beneficial for the growth of the program, uh, beneficial for what I was trying to do with the, the staff. Um, so I, I kind of avoided that. So yeah, so that so it's real really from your perspective about adding value versus adding extra work. Yeah, and, and making sure people see value. I was part of a teacher formation team at my previous school where the the formation of teachers was something that was um, metronomically and strategically implemented um, through a three-year cycle where staff would be on their particular journey at some stage identified for review and they go through a teacher formation process every three years as a member of that teacher formation team my role was to work with graduates first and second year teachers so the college actually sanctioned those teachers to work with me um, on a very formal basis so what we do is we would have the cohort meeting um, and i think we met once every once every term, I think every couple of months, met once every term. There'd be a topic on discussion. I'd present that, and then we'd go into a kind of troubleshoot, very free dialogue. And I thought, you know, whilst that's sometimes met with a bit of apathy by various individuals, I thought that was a really easy way of getting a program across the line because it, it had the full weight of the school behind it, and it was just the way things were done as opposed to, oh, this is just a bit of a, a gimmicky fad or an added layer or another, another thing we're doing here. So I found in that, power, in that context, it really, really, really easy to do, getting people together, but I just didn't think it'd work in, in, my, in this context. And I thought my relationship with the individual was much more important than getting some of the skills that I, I probably wanted to develop in, in the different coaches across. I thought managing that relationship is probably more important. So. Yeah, made that decision. Yeah, so you've touched on a, a huge factor, which is which we're both aware of. Um, its importance, and that's context, and mm. knowing knowing what works in certain certain contexts. And, and I guess that was part of probably um, the coaching that you did with with the teachers this year, um, in terms of understanding the context they work in with all boys and 
and obviously secondary school, Catholic, that sort of thing. Mm. So um, was there anything uh, that, any key tips that you sort of gave them with regards to that all boys um, secondary context? Um, you know, I tried to keep the tips as bespoke as possible and like any, co- and I'm a developing coach first and foremost, I think that's really important to, to mention, you know, like any developing coach, you know, you tread that line between mentor and coach and, and they're two very distinct things in my opinion. Um, whilst there's a time and place for both, it's really important to be, just, you know, a discreet about what you are doing, whether you are mentoring and providing advice and tips and personal strategies or whether you are coaching and in the traditional sense and, and letting the, the coachee find their own solution through your guided work. Um, you know, when I did work as mentor, um, some of the tips I gave were around the dynamic of boys and the energy associated with the classroom. I think somebody that works in a boys, uh, a single sex boys environment understands there's a certain energy associated with that. I've been privileged enough to work in different environments. And for me, that is probably the, the number one number one thing. And, um, working in an area around student management as a house leader, um, you know, we I focused a lot on observing behaviour and ignoring attitude, particularly graduate teachers. I think one of the pitfalls that grads fall into, and I know I fell into as a grad, um, is is around asserting my authority versus building relationship um, versus tactically dealing with difficult situations. And, you know, you're always flirting with that line as any teacher, you know, 20 years or or two months. Um, But observing behaviour and ignoring attitude, that was one of the key things for me. So what I mean by that is, you know, um, if you're getting a desired response from a student, um, but they, you know, they they happen to roll their eyes at you uh, for whatever reason, are you getting the desired response? If you are, focus on that and then move forward. It doesn't mean not addressing the the attitude later on but addressing attitude in the moment causes a shift from the student's behavior to the personal interaction and i think as teachers particularly in this current climate um we're always making sure that our personal face isn't shown too much because it can open you up for criticism i think and i think some of the the most poorly handled student management situations, and I've been sharing this with the grads, are around when they, they let their ego get in the way of dealing with the situation or, or, you know, and that happens for grads as well as experienced teachers, but, you know, mm. observe behaviour and ignore attitude. And then and then the emotional side of things as well. Correct. There's nothing worse than, than getting into a situation where your emotions are, are running high and you can't even think clearly. Yeah. Um, did you have any um, circumstances where you had had to sort of give advice on that sort of thing or? Yeah, so along, there's obviously a, a variety of things that happen um, when you're, you're running high in emotion. Um, one of the key things that I'm a big um, exponent of is the idea of, of mindset, uh, not necessarily mindfulness, but mindset around when you're, when a situation gets increasingly more difficult, increasingly more awkward, increasingly more aggressive, perhaps, um, the real professional rises to the actual the occasion. Um, and um, Robert Greene, I think, is the author of Turning Pro, and he talks about the amateur versus the pro. And, and the pro, when the professional, as things get difficult, that's where the professional rises. The amateur, um, amateur coming from the Latin root for love, is somebody who does things from, from the love that a professional does it because that's their, that's their business. 
Um, so from a mindset perspective, I always talk about this idea called mushin. Mushin is a Japanese word um, which roughly translates to no mind. And it doesn't mean being um, brain dead in the situation, but it means having a really open, flexible uh, mindset to actually effectively handle the situation. It's a samurai technique. Um, so, you know, when you're, and the, essentially the way I'd describe it to a, a teacher or anybody, is when you're faced with attacker head on, if you aren't aware of your surroundings, that's when you get done from the behind. Um, mm -hmm. So in this technique of mushin, no mind, uh, samurai warriors are taught to be really aware of their surroundings, really aware of their context so they can effectively handle multiple attacks from various angles. And I know that's kind of a little bit outside our context, but I suppose, you know, if you're taking that kind of a mindset into a, a small, a low level student management situation, you're never going to fumble it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Um, you're going to be fine. So that was one of the things around mindset and mutation that I really talk about. That comes a little bit out of law enforcement as well. I take a lot of my um, advice and skills and tactics and tips from law enforcement and that's something that's really drummed into police officers around their mindset to a situation. You know, they obviously encounter quite horrendous and severe situations, um, but I feel that, you know, their jobs are, are life and death and if we can take some of the the tactics that they're using around managing difficult situations um, in a teaching context, it's it's an absolute breeze. Mm. So, mutation, um, no mind, being really mindful of how you're actually addressing a, a situation is some is is definitely a strategy I'm, I'm passing on. That's that's interesting that you mentioned the um like law enforcement aspect. What like if, if people wanted to access more on that, how would you suggest they did that? Um, there's lots of strategies. Well, we live in such a, uh, rich, uh, a rich world of, of, of knowledge out there with, you know, the resources we can access online. But um, anything from, you know, negotiation, um, hostage negotiation, there's a fair bit of work out there at the moment around t tactical civility. Um, and tactical civility is, is, again, something that I really impress upon any teacher, to be totally honest because as things become increasingly difficult, uh, maintaining that tactical courtesy, and it's tactical, because when you are exhibited aggression or anger, it's natural to wanna um, revert into kind of an, an aggressive mindset yourself. Um, it's just human instincts, or conversely run away. Um, running away is an option, so how do you actually um, how, do you, how do you use some of those skills that law enforcement has? Um, George Thompson is a great, um, he's, a, he's a literacy professor, um, but also a police trainer um, in the States. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, um, but he's got a lot of literature out there around negotiation. Yeah, that's, how did you get into that? Because that seems like something that would be well outside the normal professional learning for a teacher. And it's obviously given you great benefit. Um, yeah, how did, you, how did you come across it? Um, I think I just find myself in rabbit holes a lot of the time. Um, I'm also uh, pretty proactive around developing myself outside of kind of the tradi traditional means. Um, you know, I feel that's what separates me as a leader and as an educator, that I am a, a little bit left of centre from, you know, the way I approach things. Um, I suppose, you know, some of the, some of the dangers of, of what I'm talking about here is... Um, 
teachers not necessarily responding in a really open and positive um, approach to what I'm sharing here. Um, for someone like yourself, who's quite flexible of mind and really keen to develop themselves professionally and personally, you know, you embrace new ideas regardless of what field they actually come from. I think teachers are, are quite fixed in their approach and mindset. I think we work, and, for, and that's, I suppose, the irony of it when we're, we're, we're teaching elements of, of growth mindset to our, to our students. Um, teachers are quite fixed mindset people. Um, you know, generally, traditionally, I speak for myself here, you know, we went to school, went to uni, came back to school. We haven't had some of the life experiences that obviously make a really rich, um, or give you a really rich and diverse perspective on life. Um, and speaking for myself, I didn't have that. So, um, you know, I'm really passionate about student wellbeing and student management and managing tough situations. I ran into a lot of them when I was a graduate teacher. Whilst I had some great mentoring, as I said before, um, nobody's perfect. Nobody has the key to every situation and nor do I. Um, but I thought that, you know what, who manages tough situations? Law enforcement. I've always had a really great, I've always had a passion um, around, you know, um, tactics of negotiation and persuasion, you know, some of those Aristotle um, Aristotle ideas around persuasion. Um, so I looked at that, I looked at police negotiation, the way they manage um, difficult situations, some of the hallmarks of that. I've shared that with Mushin. Um, so that's kind of, that's probably a long-winded way of saying how I got yeah. involved in it. Um, but it's a tricky one because, um, again, you're, you're dealing with, Teachers who work in a particular paradigm who don't necessarily view, you know, the tactics and nuance of other paradigms as, as relevant or necessary. Um, yeah. Whereas I think the more skills you can have from the, a, of a wide variety of sources, the better off you are as a, as a professional in any environment. Yeah, and the, I think the more, the more I learn, the more I see the connections between seemingly unconnected or disconnected areas of, mm. of study. Like what you're talking about there is essentially... A version of applied psychology but yep. it's it's a very um strong practice-based um yeah. form of, of of psychology rather than than a more academic um literature sort of thing so um just on that whole idea of professional learning because like you said you can go down rabbit holes and i've i've gone down many myself um what do you recommend as a starting point for like young well, i shouldn't say young uh teachers early in their career um, to, if they just want to go outside of the bounds of, of maybe what their school offers, where would you suggest as a starting point? I think the, I th you know, professional learning and resources aside, I think the best thing to do, and this is the advice I, I give to, to any graduate or any beginning teacher, is find somebody who is completely different to yourself and buddy up with them and learn from them. Um, I think when I reflect on the people that I've, um, being so informed by or enlightened by and educated by, they're generally very different in their approach to things. And I think as a, as a grad, you're naturally attracted as you're building relationships and as you're building um, collegial connections to be attracted to people like you. And they may be in your, in your uh, curriculum domain um, or they may just have similar likes and, and personality traits as yourself. Um, I think the really astute um, learner finds people who have skills in areas they don't have or personality traits that they don't have and not necessarily build a, build a friendship with that person, but they build a relationship to actually grow their skill set. Um, I've been really lucky that I've been kind of 
a little bit unconsciously aware of that, more conscious in my awareness now, but unconsciously aware of that and I've gravitated to people with skills that I don't necessarily have and, and I feel that I've been able to build that. Mm. Um, I've been really lucky. I've also, the other piece of advice I'd give is, is saying yes to opportunities. Um, I was afforded a great opportunity early in my career to work as a as a somewhat understudy to a group of house coordinators, as, a, as an assistant or deputy house coordinator, where I worked um, under a team of six for 12 months um, with each one of those individuals, uh, learning how they go about their business as a, as a house coordinator, day-to-day business as well as operational business. Um, and for me, for anybody, it's such a great and rich learning experience to see somebody doing the role. Mm. Um, and I think you know succession, uh, succession planning, and I think long the long game for the school that offered me that opportunity was succession planning. Um, but any school thinking about how they're growing leaders, they should be growing leaders not necessarily with literature but also experience. And the experience I got from you know six different operators. Um, six different teachers who are experienced in, in age as well as um, career progress um, just gave me such great depth so that when I did step into that position of leadership, I took the best, hopefully, from each, all six of them. Mm. Um, you know, naturally, there were things that I discarded as well, and, and it's informed me, I think, um, yeah. which I've been so privileged to. So my advice would be find people who aren't like you and connect. Yeah, that's that's amazing advice, and um, you've touched on a number of things there that I'm really interested in. One of them is the idea of uh, lived versus um, more formal um, literature and research, so lived experience and um, and formal qualifications. And this is this is coming from somebody who's who's just spent two years at uni, so. I certainly respect um, formal qualifications. Mm. And don't get me wrong. Sorry to catch you off there, Justin. Don't get me wrong. I think um, both are equally as important. And I think that's really important. And I think the other thing I should probably mention about the experience I had as as a house coordinator, understudy or assistant was it was a protected role. Mm. Um, Lived experience is really... You learn more from lived uh, experience than anything, I think problem with lived experience as a graduate teacher who's living the experience of a teacher is they're living it unprotected mm. they're, they're they're fighting the fights in the classroom sometimes they're fighting the fights with parents um, they're managing tough situations great situations planning curriculum um, but they don't have some of the protection of a mentor either giving them the tips that they need for that day-to-day kind of mm. survival or like I had I wasn't at the coalface of you know parent complaints and student management. I was just a pure observer who was living the experience um, without yeah. without the skin in the game, naturally, yeah. that you have as a grad. And I think that's where we both connect um, with our with our kind of philosophies around supporting graduates and beginning teachers is we know they need the experience, we know that they need the literature to support them, but what's the support structure there to protect, not necessarily protect them but to circumvent some of the issues that they actually come up with um, that come up on a day-to-day, day-to-day mm. basis. And I think that's the problem we've got with re- retaining graduates or, the, or, or teachers in that first five years, as we spoke about the other, the other day, is retaining teachers is really hard because either they're getting some great support or they're banging their head against the wall so often that you know, it's natural for their confidence and professional persona to take such a hit that they're left with no option but to leave. Yeah. Um, so hence the reason why I think having a coach is re- a mentor or a coach really important. Mm. Um, but, you know, lived and, and literature important. Yeah, no, I, and that's what I was going to say. I 
I think we are in a position in education where we overvalue the uh, formal qualifications and undervalue um, that type of, you spoke about like an apprenticeship. Mm. I don't see much of that apprenticeship, those apprenticeship type learning styles for leadership positions really going on yeah. unless you go and seek them out yourselves. Yeah, I, agree. I would love to see more of that, um, those opportunities for assistant roles, even if it's just a fraction of, of money spent on it, it really is a good strategy for, for school yeah, well, um, contingencies. Well, to be totally honest, and I think you picked up on a great point because at the end of the day, the dollar is what, you know, mm. um, schools live and die by, and, and rightly so. Um, the role I got as an assistant cost zero dollars. There was no POL association with it, um, and the school did kindly offer to give me a couple of free periods around meeting up with the, the different house coordinators, spending time with them. So I know that costs money, obviously. Um, but there, there wasn't a dollar figure going out the door with them. Mm -hmm. um, there was just great PL for their aspiring leader. Um, to, to a certain aspect, anybody that's undergone some kind of observation or formation process, me working with those experienced leaders probably had some added value for them um, with the cognizance of what they're doing and you know really reflecting on their practice and being able to articulate it you know so many people who've been in a leadership position or, or along any journey for so long are just so unconsciously competent about what they do and i think that's some of the harder and i think this is what it really boils down to um, when we assign leaders to mentor grads or, or inexperienced teachers they're so unconsciously competent around how they operate it's very difficult for them to transfer skills to their growing colleague or their inexperienced colleague um, if you are really conscious about how things how you actually operate and some of the nuances associated with um, you know navigating the classroom and situations great that's a really great experience but what I've seen in schools and, and from my limited experience, I must say, I've only ever seen mentors and, and buddies be a so and coaches sometimes be a, just bestowed upon someone, not necessarily because they're the are really consciously competent about how they're operating, but you know what, they're ahead of learning. Part of their role is to mentor this grad. Um, so I think that's that's a really important, important yeah. piece to the puzzle. And then it becomes an add-on, doesn't it? I 100%. mean, not that people could be really passionate about it but when you've got a head of learning position you've got your yard duties you've got your meetings you've you've got a million responsibilities that then becomes one extra thing on the end and it becomes time flies around um around schools as you know and it can become a real like oh i haven't seen that person in eight weeks and if we're talking about um a graduate or somebody in their first couple of years that can be too long sometimes um so You've actually touched on quite a few points there. And one other one is um, the informal versus formal mentoring. So I think it is important for schools, as you've sort of indicated, to have a formal process. But then there's sort of a, a responsibility on the early career teacher to go and basically seek out informal mentors who aren't in their, necessarily in their normal working lives mm -hmm. and try and learn from them as well. So... Yeah. Um, lots of good points, mate. I, I know we're conscious of time here, so just one or two um, more questions. One is with regards to, um, I guess, what you'd like to see, and you have sort of spoken about this a little bit, but mm. what you'd like to see schools do further um, to support less experienced teachers. Well, I did 
take it one step backwards. Um, and to be honest, I've been out of the kind of um, master of teaching and the different programs, you know, postgraduate programs that are available for us for teachers. So I'm not quite sure, but one of the things that I really enjoyed about my experience in, in the Melbourne Uni model of the Master of Teaching and their in-house in, um, in development where you're assigned to a particular school and you spend two days there on a continual basis rather than a block, I thought there's real value in actually, um, you know, that lived experience. I think that's really important. Um, from a perspective of what schools actually do, I think you've got to put value around your graduates. Um, and you and it's not just the process that, you know, everyone's assigned a VIT mentor or everyone's assigned a buddy in their first six months. It's, you know, schools taking the initiative to say, we see that there's possible areas or potential areas for concern for beginning teachers. We value you as a professional. We want to grow you. Um, and part of growing you is our program of coaching or our program of mentorship and and we need you to buy into it. Before you sign this contract to become part of our community, this is what our community expects of you. This is, and I think from my perspective, I think that was one of the, one of the, one of the things that held me back, I think, and one of the failures I think I had from a coach perspective is whilst the school's got this coaching program and, and one half of it, or I should say 80% of it, was run via this opt-in uh, notion my little part of it was me tapping people on the shoulder and mm. saying introducing myself as this graduate coach and you know my colleagues my new colleagues thinking that it's some added extra that they've got now in their workload as opposed to a school saying we really value you as a professional we think that you're going to bring something to our community um as part of that we assign you a coach mm -hmm. these are the reasons da, 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 da. and i think that's where schools need to take a responsibility. It doesn't matter what your teacher formation looks like or how your ARMs work or how your induction processes work. Um, I think saying, you know what, we identify, and it may even be for people, you know, teachers coming to your school. Every environment has its own context and nuance and idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. Saying that we acknowledge that, we value you, and we're going to put time into you. Um, and I know that costs money, but we're going to put time into you. And I think that does so much from a mindset perspective as well as a growth perspective. So mm -hmm. I think schools taking a lead on that, saying that we're going to be at the forefront of educating grads. I think, you know, schools that do that are probably setting themselves up for the best success. And it, it costs money to obviously invest, yeah. but it also costs money if you don't. Yeah. Because obviously the process of, of going and finding people if they do leave the profession or if there's a high turnover, that that's not only a cost financially, but obviously socially and yeah. the currency it has with the students and the parents, yeah. all that IP that walks out the door. So sometimes it's a case of that more proactive approach, um, which is, I guess, what you're talking about there. That is, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, did you have any other uh, sort of areas you wanted to touch on before we wind up, mate, or are you pretty... No, like you've, I think I've, talked, I've, I think I've been able to expand you, uh, <laughs> as much as I possibly can. I've probably rambled a little bit as well, so um, I'm, I'm pretty good at this stage, thanks. No, mate, uh, your ramblings are um, worthwhile. I've been great for me, and um, I've learned a little bit about you. didn't know the Japanese um, uh, side of things. No, I appreciate that. Um, so hopefully other people uh, who listen in all those hundreds of people who listen into this episode um, will uh, get something out of it. If they've made it to 42 minutes, then uh, we're doing all right. Thanks, buddy. So thanks a lot for your time. You're doing mate. a great job, Justin. I might just add there as well. I think, um, you know, great things happen when, you know, you have that, that, that crazy initiator 
willing to actually take a leap of faith and get out there. And I, I think you're doing doing a great job from an initiation perspective. So keep it up. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. And um, I'll take the crazy as an absolutely as a compliment. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> is. Thanks, mate.